0: You're listening to Splendid Chaps, recorded live at Agent 284 Collingwood on the 15th of June, 2013. It's time for Splendid Chaps, the podcast that's decadent, degenerate, and rotten to the core. Please welcome your hosts, Splendid Chaps, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richter.
1: You know, before we came out, John, I I was saying that when I put on this coat, and for the listeners of the very visual podcast, (laughs) it's uh, a replica of the Sixth Doctors' Coat. When you put this coat on, you can't help but stand a bit imperiously, (laughs) puff your chest out a bit, and just really want to rant and use long words. And we
2: should thank, and I put that in quotes, uh, thank Gr- Grant Watson for lending us this, this uh, amazing uh, Sixth Doctor I, I He's going to be lucky if he gets it back. I'm going
1: I'm to fight him for it. I'll send his mum a cake.
2: Made by his mum. Yeah, we got told, made by his mum. <laughs> I, I, I decided to go for, because one of the things that Colin Baker's often said in interviews is that what he really wanted to wear was a dark suit. So I've come in a dark suit... <laughs> As my tribute to the, oh. the perhaps better choice that may have oh. a road less travelled. Uh, now, another thing we've, we've actually not mentioned this. It's been out, we've not mentioned Petra Elliott. Our, our other, you know, host here. You've I been dressing ask. in period costume for the entire time we've been doing this podcast.
0: Yeah, look, I don't do cosplay per se, but I do like to sort of, you know, tip me hat to the era. And so, hence the reason I was in a vinyl skirt last time. And now it's bright pink and material that makes noise. Apologies. <laughs> you, you, Sorry, are, David. you are wearing
2: both fabrics and colours that do not appear in nature. No, nothing... <laughs> Nothing there is
0: that safe. is true, that <laughs> is absolutely true. But it's a bubble skirt, and I always wanted to bring these back into fashion, and I think I'm doing that today. You've done
2: it today, absolutely. We're here to talk about possibly one of the more controversial eras in Doctor Who, uh, which is the, is the mid 80s, the Colin Baker era, and we'll be talking about clothing in Doctor Who as well, which I think will be possibly a bit happier
1: because <laughs> this is it's a troubled time. I, I, that's fair enough it to is. say, isn't it? It is a troubled time, uh, and and I mean, I think. We always knew we would have to get to a point where we would do a show about the Doctor who ends up on the bottom of most of those lists, which I think are really mean. Like, it's like, who are the top ten Doctors? There's 11 of them, to start us. <laughs> Uh, and, 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 I mean, look, um, and as we've said before on the podcast, every bit of Doctor Who is somebody's favourite bit of Doctor Who. So I hope... There, is there anyone in the audience? Who's, anyone's got... Is Colin Baker anyone's favourite Doctor? Hey. Oh, yeah. Hey. All right. Yeah. We've got at least a few. Fantastic. So, so you know, even, even the things that perceived fan wisdom as the classic phrase that gets used on many a podcast um, and, and popular opinion supposedly tells us that nobody likes him, clearly people do. Uh, and some of them are on stage. You like him. And we also stress this is a safe space. There is no wrong way to be a Doctor Who fan. That's correct. Um, so whatever you like, get into it. Shall we put some historical perspective on this? Does that mean we have to go back to the mid-80s? It, it sadly, sadly it does. Well, let's get it over with. <laughs> Petra, why don't you throw that fast return switch...
0: Today we're heading back to the period of March 1984 to December 1986. Reagan is re-elected in the US, Thatcher is bolted into office in the UK, and Mikhail Gorbachev becomes the General Secretary of the Soviet Union. He'll go on to be the Soviet Union's first and last president, making him the Sylvester McCoy of Russia. A lot of things blow up in this period, including the Chernobyl nuclear reactor in the Soviet Union, the Russell Street Police headquarters in Australia, and the Space Shuttle Challenger in the sky. People were killed in each event, making it very poor taste for us to mention it in such a flippant way now. And we certainly won't make any tacky jokes about the assassination attempt of Margaret Thatcher in Brighton being a real tragedy, because it failed. (laughs) We're above that. (laughs) Speaking of too soon, singer Marvin Gaye is fatally shot a day before his 45th birthday by his own father with a gun Marvin had given him as a Christmas present. Merry Christmas, son. In less massively depressing news, in television, new shows include The Oprah Winfrey Show, The Bill, Thomas the Tank Engine, Perfect Match and Neighbours. One of them survives to this very day. 100% of all Academy Awards for Best Picture in this period are won by Amadeus, Out of Africa and Platoon and 0% by Footloose, The Goonies and Crocodile Dundee. (laughs) Meanwhile, all Eurovision Song Contest winners are Diggy Lou, Diggy Lay, Ladette Swing and Belgium's Jeanne La Vie sung by the 13-year-old Sandra Kim. In 1985, following advice from his friend Paul McCartney that music publishing rights make a good investment, Michael Jackson spends more than £24 million to buy the music owned by British media giant ATV, including the entire Beatles' back catalogue. McCartney later said, we kind of drifted apart after that. (laughs) Fired Apple executive Steve Jobs buys a computer animation studio from Lucasfilm and renames it Pixar. It's probably the last we'll hear of him, right? (laughs) Other things that become things during the mid-80s include Acid House, sampling in pop songs, the Amiga personal computer, Microsoft Windows, Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip, not the philosophers, Tetris and New Coke. Things that are no longer things include Route 66 instant cameras made by anyone other than Polaroid, New Coke and Queensland Premier Joe biocchi Peterson. Joe wins his last election with a whopping 38% of the vote and will later go on to star in the Fitzgerald Inquiry Also in Australia, John Farnham's Whispering Jack becomes the highest-selling album in Australian history. The $1 coin is introduced, and Picasso's painting, Weeping Woman, is stolen from the National Gallery of Victoria by cultural terrorists. It is found a fortnight later in a locker at Spencer Street Station. The locker next to that one had a copy of The Web of Fear in it, but sadly, no-one bothered to check. And Doctor Who gets cancelled or rested, depending on who you ask.
1: Really is a a confusing and sometimes depressing time in the mid-80s, isn't it? (laughs)
2: It really was. We were doing research for this going, everything's bad in the mid-80s.
1: But produced some interesting things. (laughs)
2: I don't know why they to ask you on Q&A, quite frankly, <laughs> with that laser insight. But why don't we also invite some guests on the stage I think to we help should. us discuss this We theory. need them at this point.
0: <laughs> Our first Splendid Chap is an award-winning fantasy and crime writer who published her first novel, Splash Dance Silver, at the age of 20. Her other work includes the Creature Court trilogy, the collection Love and Roman Punk, and the novella Siren Beat, as well as an essay about Trial of a Time Lord for the anthology Chicks Unravel Time. She's also one of the voices of crunchy feminist sci-fi podcast Galactic Suburbia and international all-woman Doctor Who podcast Verity. Our second Splendour chap considers herself a professional TV and movie fangirl who is yet to get her cheque in the mail. Thankfully, her ability to watch things over and over and over again has given her a rewarding career in musical theatre, literally lining up people's lives for a living. She believes cosplay is geek pride at its finest and is particularly fond of costumes she can put together using op shop finds and gaffer tape. If she was a My Little Pony, her cutie mark would be a Goonies skull. One of them has a PhD in classics specialising in wicked imperial women of ancient Rome. The other has seen Andrew Lloyd Webber's Love Never Dies more than 100 times. Both of them share a love of Tumblr, Doctor Who and Frox. They're Tansy Rainer Roberts and Zen Fletcher.
2: Tell us about Doctor Who. How How did you get into the world of Doctor Who, Tansy?
3: Um, well, I got into it through my mother, basically. She was a hardcore fan and, uh, and we had a, we, you know, she, she was a single parent. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had a video player because she came from England and she was basically very biased about television. In her opinion, anything that came from England television wise was good. And anything that came from America or was made in Australia, I wasn't allowed to watch. (laughs) So because of that, I basically grew up with a slight English accent and a deep appreciation of carry-on movies and sitcoms <laughs> and Doctor Who. And we recorded things that she approved of and we would watch it over and over and over. Just, you know, it, was, it wasn't like a... It wasn't... <laughs> it's, it's not that she was um, a particularly forceful person. Of course she is. It's what she just has very specific taste. So when it comes to Doctor Who... Um, my, I don't have a first doctor because I'd been watching it since I was tiny. I had that thing where, you know, they're all basically all the way up to Peter Davison are pretty much my childhood doctors, uh, including the black and whites, because we had tapes that friends had given us and swaps. And so I'd watched all sorts of really obscure lost, well, not lost, but you know, the, the random episodes of, of, of Unfished Doctor Who's and things like that as a child, like the mind robber was one of my favorites. I was watched over and over again. So I liked the black and whites, um, But our video collection was very selective based on my mother's tastes, which meant that we had three copies of every Tom Baker episode (laughs) as backup, Uh, whereas for the others, she was more like, you know, well, interesting ones or ones that were hard to get, sure. But with Peter Davison and John Pertwee, she's just like, no, just like the first and last of each companion or like the really interesting ones or the ones where she may have accidentally recorded it. We we didn't have any Colin Baker. (laughs) She didn't like him. Well, she did. She started recording with Trial of a Time Lord and she quite liked that. So we kept that one. But for a long time, as far as I was concerned, the Colin Baker era was Trial of a Time Lord. I hadn't (laughs) seen the others. So I didn't know what people were going on about. Because a lot of the issues I know that people complain about with Colin Baker um, are ones that had largely been fixed or to some extent had been fixed. There were still problems with Trial of a Time Lord, but a lot of them had Still wearing that jacket. Yeah, I know. But a lot of the elements like the bickering and the TARDIS or Perry, you know, having to wear really outlandish swimming gear as if it was actual clothes, a lot of those things had been tidied up a lot. So I had a very, very different view of the Colin Baker era really than most people. My version of of Doctor was very much shaped by my mother's biases. (laughs) But that's why Tom Baker is never going to be my doctor because he was her doctor. So I like all the others. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough.
4: Well, I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. I think my, uh, it's quite funny, my earliest memory of Doctor Who is actually the song Doctor and the TARDIS by the time. I was. <laughs> that's um, mine while I too. Do, Yeah, that's it. While I do have, you know, images of Tom Baker and, you know, those, those probably those episodes that were repeating in the 80s. Yeah, definitely that 1988 hit, you know, Doctor Who. Yeah, hey! wow. Come on, everyone. <laughs> I'm too scared to sing it. It's my earliest memory, and I, the good thing about it is I still sing it to this day. Like, you know, like we all chant it before we watch the new episode and, you know, that kind of thing. So, But aside from that, I'm very much, a, like many of us, a New Who fan, uh, and I've gone back and watched the classics. But... Uh, did Which you start with Christopher Eccleston in 2005? I did, yeah. Very excited to get into number nine when he came out. And yeah, it was great. And I've addicted fangirl awesome. to the extreme now. We
2: well, should probably mention, too, that both Zen and, and Tansy are dressed as the TARDIS tonight. Yeah. They're both, yes. Yeah, so
3: so <laughs> well, yeah. well done we really should have found each other first yeah we
1: did <laughs> yeah you would think it would be easier if you're the TARDIS now, right? now it's just awkward yeah, <laughs> yeah when you turn up to a party and you're
2: both dressed at the same time machine it's like oh how did this happen again yeah it's okay someone in the audience came as a
1: DeLorean so that's
2: alright <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's look back shall we at the Colin Baker years and Petra why don't you tell us a little bit more about the man himself
0: Colin Baker, the actor, not either of the footballers, was born in London during an air raid on the 8th of June, 1943, exactly six years before the publication of George Orwell's 1984 and his own sixth birthday. Uncanny. During the war, his father served in the British forces while he stayed in London with his mother. One story claims he was almost killed when shrapnel from a nearby blast embedded itself in the side of his cot. After the war, his family moved to Rochdale near Manchester where his father took a future-proof job as managing director of an asbestos company. (laughs) Colin first acted in school productions of Gilbert and Sullivan including a stint as the female lead in Iolanthe. At the age of 11, a friend's mother, a casting agent, gave Colin his first television role in Granada's 1956 series, My Wife's Sister. Colin studied law and worked as a solicitor, but gave it up at 23 to become a full-time actor. He trained at Lambda, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, where after three years, he and two other students were advised to seek alternative careers. One of the others was David Suchet, award-winning star of Poirot. After a stint as a taxi driver, Rather, Colin scored his first proper television job in the 1970 BBC Two drama, Roads to Freedom. In 1974, Colin was cast as merchant banker Paul Maroney in the fourth series of BBC workplace drama, The Brothers. Another banker character left, and Colin was promoted to a regular, appearing in 46 episodes. As villainous proto-yuppie Maroney manipulated his way into the brother's transport company, the sizeable audiences loved to hate him. In the final series, the character married his secretary, played by Liza Goddard, who later became Colin's first wife. After the brothers, Colin worked mainly in theatre but found a nice sideline in playing nasty cameos on television. These included Baben the Butcher in Blake Seven, dodgy geezer Frankie Miller in Juliet Bravo, the Time Lord Commander Maxwell in the 1983 Doctor Who story, Arc of Infinity, in which he famously executes his predecessor Peter Davison. He happened to get along very well with the assistant floor manager and was invited to her wedding, where he made a good impression on Doctor Who producer John Nathan-Turner. By that stage, looking for Davison's replacement. He claims he took a good 12 seconds before accepting the role, finding solace in the job after the loss of he and his second wife Marion's son to sudden infant death syndrome. Colin's time on Doctor Who was troubled. Halfway through the broadcast of his first full season, the program was suddenly put on hiatus for 18 months and threatened with cancellation. Luckily for Colin, he and co-star Nicola Bryant were still under contract, so he effectively got paid paternity leave for the birth of his first daughter. The program eventually returned for a shortened season, at the end of which Colin was suddenly fired, apparently at the order of BBC One controller Michael Grade. Colin was terribly disappointed, but refused to return for a regeneration story, as the required commitment would have left him unemployable for the best part of a year. Colin returned to his highly successful theatre career in drama, pantomime and musicals. He also starred as the Doctorish title character of the Stranger series of fan videos and later the Airzone solution both alongside other Doctor Who actors. He has returned to the role of the Doctor often. During the hiatus, he appeared in the BBC Radio 4 production Slipback. He took over from an alien John Pertwee in the stage play Doctor Who, The Ultimate Adventure in 1989, the Children in Need anniversary special Dimensions in Time in 1993, And since 99, he has starred in around 75 audio adventures for Big Finish Productions. He is also the only doctor to have written short stories and comics about the character. Since 1995, Colin has written an opinion column titled Look Who's Talking for his local paper, The Bucks Free Press.
2: It is a controversial time. Uh, The show was either cancelled or delayed or uncancelled. There's a lot of, of discussion and... Before we get to that, that. though,
1: because none of that had really started when Colin Baker first appeared in the role. Because oh, that's true, actually. But we, we think of it now, don't we, all sort of jumbled up together. Yeah, because, you know, he shows up at the end of Peter Davison's last season with a whole story of his own, which is arguably his worst one, unfortunately. Which arguably the worst one. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And, it, and it, look, it's an interesting decision um, to have a doctor who, when he first shows up, basically mad and not not in an endearing sort of eccentric way, but in a sort of violent mood swings attacking his own companion kind of way. It's it's really alarming.
4: Well, the the crazy part, you know, every other... Most other doctors, you know, have a cup of tea and they're fine after (laughs) they've regenerated and he's like goes crazy mad and, and tries to strangle Perry. Yeah. It's just
1: oh, I calm can't, down. I can't watch that scene.
2: John, John Nathan-Turner said that what he wanted... He didn't want to leave the show at the end of a season saying you're going to have nine months to find out whether or not you like this guy. He wanted to, to give him a story at the end. But he seems to have got a nice way to make you not like the guy. Yeah. So I don't want you to nine wait months. nine months
1: to make up your mind, so I'm just going to make you not like him right now. Yeah. Which
3: is So at least weird. you know. Right up front. <laughs> yeah.
2: But, but it's... See, so I don't, this is my, because my, we were say this is very, we try and be positive. We try, and I think Colin Baker, the individual, seems like an absolutely lovely man. Like every interview I've seen with him, he seems just absolutely gorgeous. He's a huge fan of the show. Um, his audios for Big Finish, I think, are very good. I think he's very good in those. Um, but I'm not sure for me that he ever worked as the doctor. And one of the extras on one of the DVDs, a couple of people sort of say, I think, I think Colin was almost too big for. Television television couldn't quite capture him. And it sounds like he possibly was a stage actor rather than...
1: That's certainly where he spent most of his time and still does as, a, as an actor, is on the stage. I mean, I, I just have a slightly different opinion. I think he's, he's good, but he takes a while to get into it. And the problem is that they give him this start, then there's nine months of nothing, and then he almost has to have that start again as he gets into the new production schedule and the writers get used to writing his doctor and figuring out what to do with him. And he's very consistently written. Like the Doctor and Perry are very similar in those first few stories, I think. There's that same kind of bickering. And then it kind of settles down a bit towards the end of that full season. And then there's this big gap again when you've got to start again from nowhere. So it's, it's kind of a rough time as an actor to be trying to get this character right when you've got all these weird decisions being taken behind the scenes and then you've got these big gaps in your portrayal.
3: I actually think it's a bit more uneven than that between the Doctor and Perry because I find that a lot of the stories... Usually there's about three or four minutes that we should edit it out of each Colin Baker story, which would make it a lot more palatable to me. And I don't mind the bickering aspect. When the doctor is quite aggressive and insulting to her and she gives it back to him, it actually is quite entertaining. There are some stories where that is, you know, it's obvious that they're, they're both insulting each other and they're quite comfortable with that and that's fine. The trouble is there are quite a few in which he is quite appalling to her and then... Her lines as scripted and the way it's performed, she is very cowed and upset and confused. And that's really distressing to watch. It actually feels quite abusive. Mm. And when... I think as a character, he works best when he's being loud and bombastic and somebody is actually... um, is, is reflecting that back and there are some in which Perry is great at that and there are some stories in which she's great at that for most of the story. It's just that unfortunately the two or three really uncomfortable minutes are often right at the beginning of the story yeah. and that it, it, they feel like unforgivable moments. And so, yeah, I mean, I love the idea of a darker villainous Doctor Who. I think some of their ideas were really interesting. I also think a lot of the scriptwriters kind of left them them down in that era... There are some really uncomfortable scripting choices, like the fact that it's, it's not even that he tries to strangle Perry when he's first regenerated, which would be fine. So he doesn't apologise for it. And he then spends the next several episodes blaming her and being horrible to it after that. Mm. If it had been, like, one thing that was a... And then there was some sort of redemption. But the whole of the twin dilemma is basically him being horrible and her having to put up with it. Mm. And us not really understanding why. Colin Baker
2: did say that his plan was that he wanted... To- the Sixth Doctor to have a secret that would be revealed. And oh, des- they'd never
1: do that in Doctor Who.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and he described him as being like a Mr. Darcy sort of character, that you're meant to think he's an arsehole, but then you come round to finding you know, him, him. But I think you maybe need more raw charisma to... Oh, this is, all, I've got, this is awful. I want to say nice things. what a, what a nice I, thing. I'm not no. here
4: to say nice things about him at all. <laughs> Apologies to people who are a big fan of, of Colin Baker, but... Uh, I don't actually have anything against Colin Baker. It's the it's the sixth Doctor I don't like, and it's that. And it's my number one reason is that relationship between him and Perry. I mean, aside from him being a reason, children are scared of clowns. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, it's that. It, what I look, I, I see it as a, an abusive relationship that she just. She won't leave. I just wanted to run away and be friends with someone else. He, he treats her like... The majority of the time it felt like he was treating her like a dog that he just wanted to whack on the nose and say, why aren't you staying put when I tell you... I mean, a lot of doctors get upset when their companions <laughs> run off which they do all the time which is a good thing but the way he did it it was like yeah it was like yelling at a, a bad dog you know and then and, she apologizes and then yeah she's in yeah. that abusive relationship where mm. she's sorry for making him mad mm. you know and I, oh, it makes me so uncomfortable and i just don't and and then he's pompous and doesn't apologize and there's that bit ugh. at the
1: start of Timelash where which is one of the episodes actually where perry gives it back to him Mm. a a lot more than normal. And he says, fine, I can just take you back to Earth. And she says, no, 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 no! no, I don't want to go back. Go go back to Earth. Why not? Run. Uh, Yeah, like it would be better than what eventually happens to you. Um, Either version. And, um, yeah, so it's really, it's
2: kind of weird. It's interesting to be in Trial of Time Lord, though, you've got that scene where... They mention on the DVD. It's written to be bickering between mm. the two of them. But the two actors were so fed up with it by that point that they decided to actually play it differently. And it's quite interesting to watch the two actors are playing oh, it as so as pretend bickering. They're playing it as two old mates who are kind of having a, a pretend go at each other. And it is a much nicer way to approach the scene.
3: And, and for me, Trial of the Time Lord was, like, the, the only time I saw The Sixth Doctor and Perry for, like, the first 30 years of my life, 25 years. So... As far as I was concerned, that was the Six Doctor and Perry relationship. And I probably read that as well into other stories when I saw them later and didn't really notice as much of the other stuff just because... I mean, I notice it now because it is quite obvious, especially because it's always at the beginning of the stories, like the worst insults and the nastiest behaviour is usually at the beginning. Like Mark the is actually one of the nicer stories throughout as far as their relationship, except for a couple of minutes at the beginning when they're just... Or he's horrible and she's quite sort of conciliatory... And it's disturbing. Whereas Vengeance on Varus, which is often regarded as one of the most violent and, you know, stories uh, and problematic in other ways, is one where they have quite an equal relationship. And he's insulting her and she's insulting him. And neither of them are hurt by it. And there's an equality to the relationship. Because mm. It's quite dangerous with the, the doctor and companion vibe, especially the whole male-female thing and everything where you do have this uncomfortably unequal relationship, especially when the doctor usually has more control about where they're going. He's the designated driver. She's always going to be younger than him. It becomes uncomfortable it does, to watch. Yeah. He needs to at least treat her like he respects, or any companion, he needs to treat them with some respect, or we can't like him. Well, that's it.
4: even I even felt that some of the episodes, it feels like
3: Perry doesn't even have to be
4: there, or in, you know, the companion, he could just she's not even needed in the story and she's actually the character I enjoy watching more than him. It just feels like he doesn't need a companion at all half the time.
1: They don't give her much to do either. No, she just
4: kind of, she might run off and meet the villagers that he hasn't met yet but she'll just kind of bring them to him, you know, eventually, yeah.
3: or something An like awful, that, but she's not really doing anything. A lot of the stories, as well, of this era, the Doctor and Perry don't join the action until the story's been going for some time. Yeah. So you almost feel like they were trying to tell stories without the Doctor and Perry at oh all. They're God. just trying to tell science fiction Revelation, stories.
4: First episode of uh, Revelation of the Daleks, I was, uh, you know, <laughs> three quarters of the way in and he just climbed a wall. I love like,
1: yeah. that, that, was was that story. I think that's such a great story. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't, I don't story. feel it's necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot yeah. of stuff going on, and the Doctor and Perry are really not much a part of it certainly not until right at the end
4: it's definitely a, something i majorly noticed from new who going back is that you would never really encounter the world before you you would go there with the doctor and the companion and discover it with them but now you know in the old classic who, who you get a whole story where they don't even know the doctor's there yet you know and we're seeing all this it's like a side story then then they come together i think classic
2: who in, in a way often often when it was his best would set up a type of story. It'd be like, this is, you know, this is like, like Talents of Wing Chiang is a sort of pastiche Victoriana, and then it throws the Doctor into it. And it's, it's how the story bends around him. You know, or it's, a, or it's like uh, Ark in Space is a sort of, you know, haunted house on a spaceship. And I think you throw the Doctor into the stories, whereas now I think there's a sense of what a Doctor Who story is, I think is a little bit more solid yeah. and set now than it was back then. And it's interesting because you're talking about this period seems almost like the reverse of what we have now. Yeah. Like when it came back in 2005 it said we have to focus through the companion. The companion's our our viewpoint character as they call called. And you know she will lead us into the story. Whereas like, saying Perry is, is so irrelevant to a large degree. Opinions on Mel? She's in there for six episodes with uh, the like Doctor? I like Mel. I'm
4: going kind of <laughs> to
2: Oh, there was a groan
1: from the audience. Don't, don't you be hating on us, gingers. <laughs> you know, we didn't get many gingers in the TARDIS until quite late in the piece. So We had Turlo and then Mel. And Amy. I'll, and now we've got Amy, you know, yeah. and Donna. But, you know, I'll take what I can get. Um, <laughs> no, I love all of them, actually. I love all the all the TARDIS gingers. And I, I think that... Um, I think Mel's really great. She's so proactive. Like, in Terror of the Vervoids, and I I... And maybe it's partly nostalgia, but I really like Terror of the Vervoids. I think it's a really... Like, people deride it for being a pedestrian whodunit in space. I'm like, it's not pedestrian. It's a cool whodunit in space where every, like, episode, somebody's motives are introduced and they add an extra layer of complexity to what's going on, and it doesn't feel out of place. And it also reverses this trend um, that is inherited from sort of the late Peter Davison era where the Doctor knows too much. Like, I watched The Awakening... Uh, for the Peter Davison episodes um, last time. And he knows everything in that. It's really dull to watch because every time something happens, he goes, oh, yeah, it's a malice. They do this and that. And he just tells you what's going on. He doesn't discover anything. And that happens a lot during that first uh, Colin Baker season as well. But then when you get to Trial of a Time Lord, particularly Mysterious Planet, and then Terror of the Vervoids, he has no idea what's going on. Like In Terror of the Vervoids, he's met the Commodore before. But that's like, I think that that's just a clever shortcut to the whole usual, I'm the Doctor and you should trust me conversation. And he just shortcuts it by going, no, 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 I know who this guy is. We've met before. And you're like, oh, great. Well, we can get on with the story. Well, but- it's
3: nice as well because it gets past the whole thing of, well, I need to lock you up because you're really suspicious because the, the Commodore knows the Doctor and he's like, oh, it's you. That means horrible stuff's about to happen. Great. It is lovely. It gets past a lot of things. And I always love it when stories hint at the stories that we missed. Though, as a child, I said, I always watch things in the wrong order, so I just assumed the Commodore was a character from a previous story that I just <laughs> missed.
2: I really like the bit in Time Lash where they reveal behind the mirror that there's a portrait of the third Doctor and Joe. Yeah. I, I find that really exciting, the idea of hinting at another adventure that we, hmm. we've never seen. I know a lot of people now said that they assumed that the Time War happened in some old episodes, which is interesting that it was, it was invented to kind of make it, the show easy to get back into, but clearly... You know, it has the same effect.
4: I had that very discussion with my husband when I was going over these episodes again. The Trial of the Time Lords comes along and he's like, I thought they were all dead. Like, and I'm like, <laughs> well, they, well, not yet, you know. And he's like, oh, I thought it happened from the beginning because he hasn't watched any of the classic Who.
3: And, of course, retrospectively, Genesis of the Daleks is seen now as, well, obviously that was the first bit of the Time War. You know, that was the first blowed and so you can retrospectively go back and say look there are little bits that could be part of the time law just you just don't know that they're there yeah and if we
1: didn't do that we wouldn't be fans i know
3: (laughs) because it's so much that's what we do it's like you're saying about the the portrait of um the third doctor and joe i'm pretty sure that that was used as one of the missing adventures so in the 90s when the novels came in they actually did sometimes do specific it's like let's find a really specific gap and actually address that that question So, in fact, it's probably like most of those things where has been addressed at least three different pieces of spin-off Doctor Who media, (laughs) because that's how we roll. I think the best sixth Doctor companion was actually Glitz. I love the stuff in particularly episode 13 of Trial of a Time Lord, where Glitz is the character that the Doctor decides to take into the Matrix, and they run around having stupid, weird, surreal adventures. And because Glitz is the kind of person who's never going to be damaged by the way the Doctor acts, and so the Doctor can be all scornful and boisterous and angry and Glitz kind of, it just rolls off him and they're a great kind of double act. I think it would be brilliant to have seen them as like a whole season of these, you know, um, kind of slightly roguish Doctor and his Companion uh, traveling, around. It would mean that you wouldn't have had a regular female character, which, you know, is always something I'm a little bit sus about. But I do like the tradition of male companions. I think it would have been nice and they would have just been forced to write more interesting female guest cast for a season. I think that wouldn't have hurt them at all.
2: I actually find Glitz quite creepy because when he's first introduced, he's, he's very much a murderer and a very nasty type. And then we kind of... He makes f-
3: the Doctor look better. This but, is what I'm saying. But, but, it, but
2: it's more like by episode 13, they're going, "Oh, that lovable old rogue," you know. You know, he's oh, a lovable old rogue. He kills people. I know, but, but the show presents him as, "Oh, Uncle Glitzy," and you know, and it's just, I don't, I, I find yeah. it quite disturbing. Well, that just shows
4: how awful I think the Sixth Doctor is. It takes a murderous fiend to make him
3: look good. But I, I think the thing about Glitz is that he um, he kind of represents the Sixth Doctor in the, uh, the Sixth Doctor era, in that. This balance of violence and really quite dark themes, with it weirdly inappropriate comedy, overlit and that sort of everything being a bit costumey and stagey, and that was sort of the odd thing. I think people notice the violence in the comeback era more because it's it's lit differently and everything. Everybody's dressed like they're on the stage, and there's all the bright colours, and that's just weird when there's also acid baths. You know, whereas if it was lit a bit more like it was proper dark science fiction, like if it, was, if it all looked a bit more like Blake 7, it would make sense. But otherwise you're there going, well, it looks like it's a happy sitcom, but people are dying. I'm uncomfortable with this. Mummy, why is that clown hurting all those people? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Because he does shoot quite a few people as well. Like, I mean, it's, it's, He's, well, the he's bang on for guns in this period. The he, doctor's yeah. always shooting people. It but, happens quite a but bit.
2: But he's quite more. comfortable are with quite them. He's always picking them up. And, yeah, there's never any question that it's weird to
1: hand the doctor a gun Yeah, yeah he doesn't period. even question it. Yeah. Again, that's something that in the, by the time of trial they've addressed because in Terror of the Vervoids he takes a gun specifically, but he does it as a ploy because he's removed the power pack from it so that when someone else takes it off him and tries to use it to hold him hostage, he's like, ah, oh, yeah, I wouldn't carry a gun you idiot. Except and he's like, this I've been this watching you last season, mate. <laughs> like, <laughs> you shot Cyberman and Daleks and people. It's terrible.
3: Well, so that's the thing. I mean, in Trial of a Time Lord, it's the worst trial ever. They have to fake evidence yeah. of him acting badly when they could have actually just done it as a clip show of appalling things <laughs> he had done. Yeah, And it would have been fine. But it's, oh, it's all suspicious because they're faking evidence. It's,
4: it's quite funny in the Trial of the Time Lord. That's probably the only time i actually warm to him when everybody's attacking him it is interesting that they came back they
2: had a whole series planned they they threw it away to do the trial concept which even colin baker was saying uh, he didn't know that was a really good idea to kind of make it so obvious
1: yeah yeah it's a, i mean i went back and watched um uh, there's so many good documentaries about this period particularly on the trial of a time lord dvd's um, which we have as prizes for later on. When you go back and watch the the press reaction at the time, it's really interesting because when he's first announced, it's, such a, it's really sad. Like You know he was saying before that Colin Baker is such a nice guy and he really does seem to be a genuinely lovely man who really loved doing the show and, and loved that opportunity. And I think partly because he'd been playing these complete bastard characters, he just like, he relished the idea of being able to play a hero and yet they made him play the hero in the most unlikable way possible but even when he got the role people were saying nice things about him um, there was a great headline in one of the tabloids when he was first announced that they used the pun six appeal and to, they, they they described him as sexy because you know the tabloids did that for every doctor with the possible exception of sylvester mccoy and um i love sylvester mccoy but i don't think they would have taken that tack uh but they they described him as tremendously physical with the build of a boxer which is not an unreasonable thing to say about Colin Baker, particularly if you watch him at the start. And then, and then there's all this controversy that happens around that time that he's sort of embroiled in as well. Do we want to talk about that?
2: Well, we're actually kind of running out of time oh. to talk about Colin Baker because we want to talk about costumes and there's, there's so much Indeed. more to get through. It, it's funny, though, isn't it? Because there's, there's other periods we, we've kind of run out of time because there's so much to say about the Doctor. This is almost like we're running out of time because there's so much to say about the period. Is there anything that we want to especially add now, though, about Colin Baker's Passwords. Doctor.
4: I like that he likes cats.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. And, he, and that's, that's, that's Colin Baker. Colin Baker loves cats, and it was his idea to have the badge. And, and if you. I didn't notice it before, on this rewatch, every time something's going to go wrong, he rubs his little cat badge for luck. Like before he operates the TARDIS, before, um, you know, he does anything risky, he's like. Uh, and he does it quite obviously. Like he's not being surreptitious about it. Um, but I, I really like. I I don't know why I I know there's so many problems with the doctor in this area and the decisions made about him but I I think there's still something about him that is essentially doctory that I do really like particularly during that last season and the end of his first season.
4: I do see the doctor I do see the doctor in there. I feel especially like I said I like him in the in the trials. I I can see the doctor I love in so many other doctors in there, but it, I just, it's masked by all these other things. I just can't get past, and it's frustrating. So when I do see it, I light up, but it just doesn't last long enough mm. for me.
2: Each episode we have a prize both for you, the audience here, and also the audience at home, the virtual listener. They're a real listener. I don't know why I said they were virtual. And to win the virtual door prize, though, virtual listener, all you have to do is go to the blog post on our website, SplendidChaps.com, where you'll find this episode that you are currently listening to, and leave a comment. Thanks to BBC on DVD, we have the Trial of Time Lord DVD box set. The best Colin Baker season
1: by far, and the it's worth it just for the extras. The they extras are, are amazing. amazing
2: on this. They are really good. Last show for the Fifth Doctor, we were giving away a copy of The Visitation DVD. I think we're doing the books one first though, We also have copies of books to give away. We've been giving away so much stuff. I know! Okay, so thanks to Penguin Books Australia, we have copies of the Doctor Who Character Encyclopedia with all 11 Doctors. You can cross that out now and correct that with pen. Um, Or, (laughs) my favourite book of the whole world ever. This is so good. Where's the Doctor? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) By Jamie Smart. And look at this, look at this. Watch out for the silence as you search for the Dr. Amy and Rory. So here's a creepy, creepy, abandoned hospital. Oh full of silence. Show them the favorite one, they John. Decide oh, to oh, actually, no, no, you know what's really good in here? There's a the thing yeah. about the silence. Here's a picture <laughs> of the silence see what I did there? Uh, yeah, well uh, yeah, well done. Well uh, done, Off the top John. of my head, that was quite good. Yeah, so, um, so you, have to try and find, you have to try and find them. There's some balloons, because the silence love balloons.
1: Uh, hey, just because they don't have mouths doesn't mean they're not smiling on the inside. Which one are we drawing first? Uh, Let's go to the character encyclopedia. Okay, so the winner of uh, the character encyclopedia from someone who commented on our Who in Books episode on the website is Lucas Testro. Oh, Lucas Testro. There's Lucas there. Here? Hey. Uh, but we also have a copy of Where's the Doctor uh, for another person who commented on that episode. So let's see who wins that. John Shea. John Shea. John Shea. So we'll be contacting
2: both John Shea and this mysterious Lucas Testro, if that is your real name, <laughs> to let you know how we'll be sending you those prizes. Uh, and we also have a copy of the Visitation Special Edition from our Five Fear episode. So we'll get
1: Tansy if you want to pull one out for that.
3: Kerry Dustin.
2: Kerry Dustin. Good work, Kerry Dustin. I think and that's all that business out of the way. We have it? one more copy oh, to give away, which we'll give away, uh, another copy of Trial of Time Lord to the best question slash comment, oh, which yes. we have received. Now, we have received some during the break. We have received some great questions.
0: The 10th Doctor's comment that he's never been ginger is an evil revisionist attempt to erase the Sixth Doctors era because Colin Baker is clearly more ginger than blonde. Discuss. <laughs> Kisses.
1: Uh, Quickly, uh, more ginger than blonde? No. Okay. (laughs) I've got a couple of comments here that are kind of related to each other about the problems uh, from the era. So, should uh, John Nathan-Turner have fought harder to retain Colin as a doctor, even at the risk of the program... Um, and then sort of on relation to that because we haven't really talked m- too much about John Nathan-Turner today. This era is perhaps mostly a victim of the deteriorating relationship between J&T and Eric Saward. The producer was setting a brief with the idea of an arc in characterization and choice of league actor that the script editor didn't agree with and wasn't committed to executing so script problems were inevitable. Who wrote that? Oh, someone named Lucas. <laughs> How many of these did you write? <laughs> Uh, but the other one is, is not. The other one's from Damien. Um, what do we think? Do, do you think, do, was did John Nathan turn it, did he owe it to Colin to fight back? I, I don't know that he really had any power to. It was the controller of BBC One who was saying get rid of him.
3: Oh, um, yeah, I don't know. I think there's, there's separate separate issues, but I think it is fairly clear that there was a problematic relationship going on between J&T and Eric Soward and, yeah. and that that's probably what led to a lot of the odd and erratic kind of choices or where things seem... They seem to be trying to do one thing and they're working against each other. I mean, it was, it was not a happy time having, you know... Yeah, it, it just wasn't a happy time behind the scenes and that was reflected in the stories.
4: Yeah, I'd agree. Not knowing much of the behind-the-scenes story,
1: uh, it's clearly something wasn't gelling. Yeah. The, what all came out, there's that one interview, I think it was in Dreamwatch, where they interviewed Eric Soward and he just said all the things that he hadn't said and probably shouldn't have said in a public forum. And then they published it. It's odd
2: that he was saying those things at the time. That's the weirdest thing. Because these are sort of comments that you hear people make 20 years later. Yeah. But Eric Saywood did an interview then where he kind of announced all this. It is weird, though, that John Nathan Turner's producer, people have mentioned that he was very big on uh, Shopping List. Ideas, So it would say, okay, it's got to be in Spain with the Sontarans and the second Doctor. Go. And people would have to try and find a way to make that work. And sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. And I think I almost got the feeling that, that Eric said at the beginning of being a script editor and I think much later on Andrew Carmel obviously found a way of making that work. And it does feel like in this period Eric just gave up. Just went, yeah, whatever.
3: Well, I think sometimes it depends on who you're giving those instructions to. I mean, it also reflects how Russell T Davies really seems to have done a lot of their seasons where, you know, it's fine to give a shopping list of really cool ideas for a story, but if you're handing it to Pip and Jane Baker, you're going to end up with a script that maybe won't rise to the occasion. And it seems like at that time they were really struggling to find professional writers who could write something that was actually felt like Doctor Who and didn't feel like something else. Um, Vengeance on Virus is a really interesting example of taking somebody who was quite a successful script writer in other ways, and they they got hit, a new person in to do Doctor Who, and he, was, he had a very big kind of career doing other stuff, um, particularly quite serious plays, and it's quite a serious science fiction work. But they did seem to struggle, and uh, I know they seemed to fall back on using some of the same people, and a lot of, yeah, the, the decisions weren't really working. Whereas if they'd had, like, you know, Robert Shearman and Stephen Moffat and that lot writing, possibly. Those shopping lists would have had completely different results.
2: Then you had a question.
3: I do. Why did they make the the character of the doctor so
4: unlikable? Uh, were they trying to kill the show? Well, we kind
1: of covered it, but it is odd. It was an odd decision. Very I odd. Thought. Yeah, yeah. Because he and I, I mean, I know they wanted to do something different to Peter Davison. Yeah, they're um, definitely trying to make a dramatic difference there. Yeah, perhaps too dramatic because I think when we talked about Peter Davison, one of the things he did was try and draw on all the previous doctors except for the immediately previous one. So there's bits of you know John Pertwee and and Patrick Troughton and William Hartnell in him and they come out in varying different ways. Um, And it might have been better if they'd done that with Colin instead of just going, look, just be different and here's how we want you to be different to have gone, well, look at these other doctors. Because even the first doctor who's probably the other one who's the most belligerent is never quite as threatening and mean. And maybe that's because we perceive him as being quite a frail old man, even though it's demonstrated that he's not frail, that he's not physically threatening as well. Like, you feel like, you know, if he's got a position of power over, say, Ian and Barbara and Susan... But he's also got that very sympathetic character of his own granddaughter who clearly
3: loves him. Yeah, and Ian and Barbara could totally take him if they wanted oh, yeah, to. Easy. Like they could just grab him and lock him and lock him up in the cupboard or something. Barbara tie was... him up in a cardigan. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I think it does make a difference. Whereas Colin Baker, he has that physically bigger presence than his companion, and that immediately makes that relationship more uncomfortable.
4: I, I don't think they intentionally tried to make him bad. I, I, feel, I feel like perhaps if he'd gotten his way and was allowed to wear the black velvet suit, it would have matched his personality a bit more. I, I actually find that maybe it was the, the comparison between the, the coat, you know, the bright, flamboyant, what you would perceive as a happy persona versus his clearly not happy persona.
2: Yeah. Well, so The costume is... I mean, everyone mentions the costume. It, it It does seem it 's certainly a stumbling point for a lot of people you I think wanted to defend the costume because oh, let 's face he 's wearing a coat of many colors, as displayed here on Ben um, The whole outfit though it involves involves. Yellow and black stripy pants. There's like everything in it. They're is the only just... thing that matches, though.
1: I think everyone goes on about the pants. I'm like, no, no, no. The pants match the cuffs yeah. on the coat. They're the only matching thing in the whole okay, I quite like the pants, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but,
2: it's the whole, but it's a terrible, terrible costume. And it basically screams children's show and pantomime and, and all these things in one go. Uh, why?
3: Well, I'm, so, I'm not necessarily a defender of the coat. I mean, it's obviously quite an appalling item of clothing. Although it's got to the point where I'm actually quite... I've, I've, come to, I've come to terms with the coat. And actually, it was partly because of June Hudson, who was a costume designer, mostly in the late Tom Baker era. And she's often one who's been quite outspoken about some of the costuming uh, errors, as she saw them, that happened after her time. Uh, particularly, she designed the Peter Davison outfit, but not the trousers. And so whenever she was interviewed, she'd always make it very clear that the trousers and the question marks were not her idea. The rest of it was hers. And she was also had been quite scornful about the, um, the Colin Baker outfit over the years and talked about how if you're going to do that, if you're going to do the mismatching colours and everything, you'd take it to a much better tailor and get a much, you know, you know more high-quality garment. I'm sorry. I have to say, the one that you're wearing is actually slightly nicer than the one in the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> it might be because it's, it's a bit muted with age. It's got that little slightly antiqued... It's the way it's worn, it. darling. It's the way it's worn. It's, it's the way it's worn. <laughs> um, no, I just keep going back to the coat, But... Um, she was recently interviewed um, by cross-promoting, but one of my my, my Verity cohorts, um, and she actually had spent the whole convention uh, this year as a guest of honor at Gallifrey. She spent the whole convention going over her old anecdotes about which costumes she'd always disliked and and why, you know, how she would have done it differently and all that sort of thing. But then when she was actually interviewed by Deb, she said, "Well, you know, having said all that, I've been rethinking it this weekend because she'd been seeing all these people cosplaying and stuff like that," and she said thing is, you wouldn't change, go back and change it now, would you? Because it's just become such a recognisable feature of the show and of that character in particular. And yes, maybe in the, for the sake of good taste, you might change it. But it's just, it you know, you can't imagine the Sixth Doctor without having that coat somewhere in his history. So I know, I, I've come to terms with it. I think, and I actually am now thinking I want a quilting project because um, <laughs> <laughs> I make quilts and I really... It's just something so awful about it that it does become a work of kitsch art in its own right. And I think that Doctor Who fans generally would be happier in themselves if they could also come to terms with the fact that it exists and it is part of the show that we love. We don't have to love everything about Doctor Who. But, you know, it's it's a safe place here. I think people who do love the coat, and I can see that you love the coat, Ben.
1: I do. Yeah. I do. And I, you know what? I love that, in, and I've, I I tried to find out which one it was, and I couldn't uh, find it before today, but there's, I think it's in one of the missing adventures from Virgin Publishing. The doctor sort of explains the purpose of the coat, and it's sort of a similar moment to when the fifth doctor explains to Perry about the celery. But he says that, one of the reasons he wears it is that whenever he goes somewhere, he always inevitably gets into trouble and people can always find him because he's never dressed appropriately for the period and that's always been true um, unless he goes to Victorian England and he's the first doctor, right? But in every other case, he's always out of place visually but because he's wearing this coat people remember the coat and if people go yeah, well that guy in the multicoloured Edwardian coat if he takes it off he can just blend into the background like he- all his co- it's like in, in, in Mark of the Rani yeah, when he puts the, the black outfit on and, and nobody.
3: And suspects. smears dirt on his face. Yeah. But his, his hair is just so bright blonde and, and clean. And, so is he's his got pants. Dirt in his he's face. got bright yellow pants on. <laughs> but he took off the coat and he did look. He, he did immediately, I've I'm got to say, look like he was a better actor as soon as he took the coat off. And, and he. he hardly, I love. I, I do. I'm fond of the coat. But yeah, I don't
4: I don't, I don't, don't hate the coat. Just, I know yeah, this okay. might come as like a bit of a surprise. I don't hate the coat. I just feel it didn't fit i picture a more like maybe even a childish matt smith doctor in in that kind of coat more than more than his i've always felt that the doctor's costumes reflect their personalities you know very much so and so it just didn't and and knowing that he didn't colin baker didn't want that kind of enhances that for me i just yeah just doesn't fit.
3: I have to say as well, though, um, in the same way that the audio plays seem to have redeemed the Sixth Doctor in the minds of many people, I kind of feel like some of the really cool cosplay over the years has redeemed the Sixth Doctor coat because one of the first times I became really aware of cosplay as a thing was a a picture from one of... I think it was one of the Gallifrey conventions. And it was a woman who'd done a Femme Doctor costume uh, and it was a... I think it was a Regency style or a Georgian style ball gown. Like, it was a full, flat-out ball gown but made in the style of the Six Doctors' coat with those colour choices. And it was one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen. And yes, the colour combinations are awful, but to see them celebrated in that way as a ball gown, and that just... I don't know, it was just like a really nice moment. And I love the fact that modern fandom is even embracing that, you know ugly cousin
4: it's definitely iconic you can see a david Tennant or a six doctor you know colin baker running around a convention you instantly know who they are but poor old christopher eccleston in his coat if he's not standing around the other doctors sometimes people don't know who he is <laughs> just, know, just a guy, jacket, just a guy in a leather jacket but and a
2: actually that that brings up a, just a thought about costume in general that I was thinking about. When we put together, we do a homework list for each of our shows just in case people don't know the era and they, they want to look at that era. When we were talking about clothing as a, as a theme, we came up with lots and lots of classic Who examples and we were kind of struggling to find equivalent examples in the new series. Like, for example, uh, Talons of Wing Chiang has this beautiful Victoriana theme to it. Now, they've done Victorian England a few times in the new series and it's done incredibly well, but of Wing Chang reimagines the Doctor and reimagines Leela and Leela isn't in a Victorian frock. She's in, like, bloomers and she's in in the clothing that is sort of equivalent to her character, even though that's not what most women were wearing at that time. And it felt like New Who will just put them in the right frock.
3: Sometimes they will, but often it is a commentary on, on what's going on. I think that there's been a lot of really interesting clothes-related narratives in New Who. Like Rose, for instance, you actually see her character grow up over the two years in the changes in the way she dresses.
4: Rose has one of my favourite iconic sort of costume moments, and uh, is uh, and it's not the 50s episode, which I do like that outfit, but it's the uh, Union Jack shirt i think it's such an important thing she's so badly dressed for the time period she's in and you know but it makes that great yeah hanging
3: from you know the empty child that doctor ah, dances, the doctor dances and she's in the blues. and of course yeah. the empty child yeah absolutely um and i think I mean, it's less of a case with martha and it's partly because she was there less although with martha you do see very notable changes in her clothing used in her return as the companion. So she wears pretty much almost the same outfit because her time with the doctor is like two weeks or something really. She wears about to a couple only a couple of different outfits. But whenever she goes away from the doctor for some time, whether it's in the story where she walks the world for a year, and then again when she leaves the doctor and comes back in the Donna season and then comes back again, costume is used to show that there's been character progress, that she's become tougher or harder, or that she's now working for the military, that she's got her medical qualifications. Um, so it's used in subtle ways.
2: One of the things that's interesting I was going to say about the Companions is if we look back in the past, there are crazy clothes. Like, oh, yeah. you know, there's crazy Sarah clothes. Jane Smith in and the Andy Pandy outfit. You've got um, Liz Shaw's first thing. She's wearing a dress that's half plastic. Uh, anything with Joe in it ever. <laughs> you know, um, there's even, even Zoe wears a, like a, a lame um, cat, suit. cat suit a few times. And it was interesting looking now... Uh, often, like Rose is just wearing a, the jeans at the top. Like, it's really normal looking clothes. And Russell T. Davies said he wanted the show to date. And yet, everything that, that, that they're wearing in the last eight years, and may, maybe I just don't have enough fashion now to notice this, but to me, it doesn't look any different. And I'm kind of wondering. We're too close
4: to it. I think. Well, it's also, like, do you think we're also more too conservative, just clothing uh, well, wise? Well, it probably does say something about how we dress today versus how we dressed even in the 70s or you know earlier times
3: 2005 <laughs> was a while ago now and if you look at some of those episodes they have aged a bit around the edges some of rose's clothes i think were very much of the time um i don't know i mean i have less of a I think it is harder to look at the, our current or the most recent decades fashion as opposed to... You know, you know like
4: when you're in the 80s, you don't know, yeah. notice... I think we're only just getting you know, a sense It's only now, now the we're sort of seeing... Well, the, yeah, like, the, the, the 90s fashion we're just yeah. seeing now, yeah. so it's, we're too yeah. close to the
1: current... But could okay. you, yeah. like you like go into a current clothing store and buy stuff that you could put on and you would look pretty much exactly like Rose or oh, Martha? Oh, yeah, they
3: basically did have, have clothed the companions <laughs> with stuff and you've seen people, I think, pretty much from every companion... I've, I've seen people have said that you know, they can go buy those clothes in the shops at that time. They're actually whole tumblers devoted yeah, there's, to... there's whole websites to dressing go. Dressing yourself that like the modern jacket, companions. The purple jacket that Rose wears. Mm. It? Um, or Martha's leather jacket, you know, in that particular look. Um, a bit of Donna stuff. I mean, Jackie. Jackie's a really interesting character because she has that very, like, she, like, her, track, her track oh, tracksuit yeah. and her kind of, a lot of her sort of, she's got that kind of slightly white trash sort of, well, it's, well, chav is the London term, isn't it? And and she really kind of... You can tell a lot about her character from the way that she dresses. And I think that's one of those people will look back on and say, oh, that, that obviously meant something then. Now we're just seeing the tracksuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen people, people sometimes cosplay in, like, little pink tracksuit and stuff. and It's <laughs>
4: adorable. I think there's a lot more subtlety going on now, but I think that's because they're trying to make Doctor Who a bit more serious now. You know, the effects... Are, Somewhat quite good now, you know, and you know, the, the is, set I, doesn't fall over anymore.
2: But, you know? I, but I think those clothes are like, especially that Joe was wearing, I think those were the height of fashion at the yeah, time. absolutely. It's just that I mean, we it was don't just have that equivalent insanity. And in I, I think some
3: of Amy's outfits kind of come close, like there are a few of those, and maybe it's just because I'm in my mid 30s now, you know. But I look at some of those outfits, it's like, you know, I'm not quite sure why she's paired that with that, but it suits her character, and they do look like her outfits. Yes, she wears very short skirts, but it, it matches her character and they always look like outfits she has assembled for herself. Um, Clara is is one that we sort of talk to, have talked about quite a bit yeah. on Verity because um, it, it's she always wore the little dresses which really suit her, but also the fact that she's always wearing vintage clothes is a really important clue to her character. And, of course, in The Last in the Name of the Doctor her costuming, oh my goodness, the the cosplayers are going to be kept happy with that phrase because she ends up wearing all these beautiful outfits that sum up different eras of Doctor Who. So she's like the cosplayers, you know, just hero. And so she gets to wear a Gallifreyan outfit and a a, a little Joe Grant type thing and some 80s clothes and some 80s hair. and
1: How long is it before yeah. we see, like, a group of cosplayers at <gasps> a convention as all the different Claras? Oh,
3: really, really oh, soon, oh, oh, oh. I, I hope, because there's already been some astounding fan art looking at all the different costumes and detailing how amazing they are.
4: Yeah, I can't wait until the next few conventions. I think it's going to be great.
3: Mm.
2: There was one theory about Clara um, uh, during the whole Who Is Clara period, which I thought was funny. Some people were saying maybe she was from the 90s because she actually dressed like that. And I thought that was actually a really interesting idea that there could, in theory, be a reveal that, in fact, she'd been obviously from another era the whole time that we hadn't noticed.
3: See, I never thought of her as wearing particularly 90s clothes, but I guess 90s is vintage now, that's scary. But she always had those slightly old-fashioned outfits. But it also, I I had heard heard the actress talk about how they were deliberately choosing like jewellery pieces and things that she was the sort of character who might pick things up in an antique shop and she would not know why because she was called to other time periods. Yeah,
4: they were definitely using the costume in a way to add mystery to her character and I think they did that really well.
3: And in the Asylum of the Daleks one, she's wearing... Like, the fact that she's wearing a cute little red dress... And was like, oh, yeah, she's wearing a cute little red dress to appeal to the dads or whatever the current fra- equivalent phrase is, you know, to a- appeal to the blokes. Um, but actually, the fact that she's wearing a deeply inappropriate little red dress is a key important reveal to her, her character and her role in that episode. But I love the fact she has a utility belt with her little red dress with an, with an egg whisk in it. And that, to me, and I love the fact that that egg whisk and that utility belt is something that was picked up in fan art and was picked up in costume. It's just such a gorgeous detail and it shows that little Doctor Who thing of that little bit of absurdity with a cute frock.
4: The New Who's very good at that. I mean, classic Doctor Who is really good with that as well with, like, just that little thing, like the, the piece of celery or the 3D glasses, David Tennant, or, um, you know, the bow tie, just that that key thing that, like, you can you can say pay homage to that, that era of Doctor Who with just that one item. You don't have to even wear the rest of the costume.
2: One of the things I did notice, though, between Old Who and New Who, and this is not one of those, one is better than the other. I think this is just about how televisions has changed. Uh, when we were looking, so we were mentioning things like Robots of Death is set on a, on a um, sand miner. It's, it's on another planet. It's, you know, theoretically, it's a future story. But everyone's dressed in sort of Art Deco 20s, period. It's a gorgeous story because the the look of it is not connected necessarily to the story but it's it's a thematic Thing they've just well, chosen. I think
3: it is as well because it actually tells you these people are miners but because they work on this massive ship that can do all the mining for them, so their job is to basically sit at the computers and press the buttons mm-hmm. and that the fact that they're wearing these really glamorous costumes that sort of tell you something about their society so workers
2: rather and than, decadence
3: yeah. and, and it's like, well, they could have just been in plain coveralls and how boring would that have yes. been to look at? But, that's but instead I mean. you have this thing that makes hints at this society of decadent people pressing buttons while wearing gorgeous outfits.
2: But this is what I mean. Now I think you would just get them in coveralls. I think there's a, and and the the difference is, I think old school who came from a time in which television was more like theatre. BBC television was more like theatre. And uh, BBC television now is more like film. So the costuming now is part of a whole look, and it's incredibly well done, and it's beautifully thought through, but like you're saying, it's very subtle. You know, it's, very, it's part of the whole piece. Whereas I think back in the day, because it was more like theatre, it was more like a, a spectacle in itself. Like it was often a point of interest, regardless of, of what the rest of the story might be. So it's a sort of thing where you, you will go, oh, look at the lovely costumes in a way that, that draws a lot more attention to itself like it would in theatre as opposed to now, where it's meant to blend in as part of a whole look.
1: I think it, something else that's, I think, a distinction is that um, until fairly recently in New Who, you don't The Doctor doesn't visit other civilizations and cultures very much. He mostly spends his time amongst Earth cultures that are either historical or future. And when he goes to the future, it's almost always explicitly either a ragtag group of surviving human beings... Or um, a group of just random aliens from all across space and time. And so there's no cohesive sort of unifying factor. And you never meet this sort of culture that has to be called out as alien and weird. Like if you go back and look at something like Snake Dance when they go to Manusa, the costume design in that is phenomenal. Like that that feels like a whole society that's not quite like any society that you can – name on earth i mean if you know more about costume and and the history of clothes probably you can see where the influences come from but when i watch it i just see that this all makes sense like all these people feel like they're from the same culture even though some of them are clearly you know upper class and some of them are clearly like poor and in the streets but it all feels like it fits together and yet it also feels like somewhere that's somewhere else and you don't see that as much in in new who
3: no i think there was quite a fear with New Who when it came out there are a couple of things they really tried not to do from the start and sometimes they've let them creep in since and sometimes they haven't and one of them was the depicting the alien worlds full of alien cultures that people might not care about back at home and I think it, was, it did get to the point where they were underestimating their audience I think too much you can see how it could be terrible of course it could be terrible but I think there was a bit of a fear of the kitsch and of, like, the entire planet of Kitsch, whereas, of course, there are whole classic Doctor Who stories which are unapologetically planet of the Kitsch <laughs> or planet of the, the the weird costumes and things. And I think they didn't want to be thought of as being that show. They want to be a show that's taken as a serious drama as well as being Doctor Who, which, amazingly, they have managed to mostly pull off. <laughs> but it did mean that things like Doctor Who fans were complaining for a long time that we weren't getting alien planets, and then we did. It was, like, quite a really small thing. I mean, I was really quite surprised when they brought back the Time Lords, they actually brought back the whole Time Lord, iconic Time Lord look Mm. without really updating it much, except allowing, you know, some people who weren't white or men to be Time Lords, which was quite exciting. Um, But, you know, they actually kept that look because that's so associated with the quite cheaply made late 80s show, even though it was introduced earlier. I think it had come to be associated with that sort of slightly cheesy version of the show that a lot of people were worried that it might be when it came back and that you know that they might have to be embarrassed about Doctor Who. And even though it's massively popular now, there's still a little bit of caution.
2: I do feel the show is, it's both uh, more professional and safer, perhaps, in costuming now. And I think in in the original days, you get much more desperate attempts, usually when the budget is running out as well. So, And sometimes it succeeds. Like I think the, the, the dentistry costumes on everyone in Revelation the Daleks works brilliantly. I think that, yeah. that's, that's an excellent choice. Because they feel
1: choice. clinical and cold and detached, yeah. yes, which so is I mean, what they're supposed like to feel part. like.
2: Um, I think the, the, the um, dresses on the Dulcians uh, in... Yeah. in um,
0: the dominators, the dominators. Yeah. Which
2: is actually also intended as a really horrible comment about, you know, Nancy Boys oh, yeah, and pacifists. It's a terrible story. But that's also clearly a terrible idea. Like, you know, it's, and I think you get that thing of there's that sort of desperate choices. And in fact, when we, when we talked to Alexandra Tynan in the first episode of Splinter Chaps, and she was saying that basically it all got down to what could you do in the three days before you were filming? Like, it was just desperation working on this. And you do get the feeling now that there's much more kind of money and time and professionalism to make sure it looks great but perhaps also that it doesn't rock the boat so much.
3: Yeah, I think that Doctor Who still has perhaps a little bit of a fear of being laughed at in the wrong places simply because it's being made by a lot of people who loved it back in the day and are very conscious of that memory of being laughed at when your show, you know, was sometimes less than less less than perfect. Can we talk
1: about the, the Doctor's costume a bit more? So we've seen, like, it, you would see often a very similar... Costume for most of the the classic Doctors, with the notable exception of John Pertwee, who would wear something different every week. Basically, um, something different and fabulous every week. Let's let's uh, let's put that on the table. But
3: they all had a look.
1: And they like, all had a look. Hmm. Yeah, um, and now you've got. I mean, and Eccleston obviously was hardly around long enough to, to do much with his look. Like, he wore a few different coloured skitties. It's very practical.
4: I think, it, it's bl- like you are talking about, with them being a bit scared to to branch out and do Aliens, you know, they just wanted to play it safe a little bit in that first season, not scare everybody, get some new fans in. And,
3: and it's funny, too, that the idea of the Doctor wearing a black leather jacket and a top was seen is seen as playing it safe because, actually... That's like that's what the costume that Paul McGann wants to wear as the eighth doctor, and everyone was like, No, that's too out there because the doctor has to wear old fashioned d clothes and he has he to have so he has to have actual <laughs> hair, so you shaved your head, and that was very naughty of you, so we're going to put a curly wig on you because the people have expectations of the doctor, and so bringing the doctor back was actually as, as the leather clad you know S- not quite skinhead, but you know, the short hair and the, the tough... That was actually incredibly brave at the time. It's that we look back on it now and he seems quite muted compared to the later Doctors and less dramatic. But at the time, it wasn't it was a, it wasn't quite shocking. I think people were ready for the Doctor to just dre- dress like an ordinary bloke. But it was just a little bit... It was It was a very brave move for them to make and it worked. They pulled it off very well.
1: Do you think... I mean, people talk about the classic Doctor's costumes as having... It's one of the things that kind of grounds you that the character is the same person across the different incarnations because there's um, I think it's on more than 30 years in the TARDIS that the costume designer is talking about how even though they're very different outfits, they're all essentially sort of Edwardian in some way, like the long coats and cravats and waistcoats and some variation on that sort of design. And even though John Pertwee's outfits are, are quite fashionable in their way for an old-fashioned gent in the 70s, um, there's still that sort of air of an upper-class gentleman which has got its own problems, of course. Do you, is that a disconnect then with what they do in the new series with Christopher Eccleston who's wearing very sort of... I don't know, how would you describe that as a different character choice? Is that, is, do you think that's deliberate as well to, to tie in with the things they did to the character at that time?
3: I think it's interesting that nearly every Doctor has an iconic scene in which he chooses his clothes, we don't or always, steals
1: them from or a or hospital.
3: Them, <laughs> Even that, it tells you something about that version of the Doctor. Um, and with the fourth Doctor, we had like, the bit of pantomime going in and out with the little chromakis who's suddenly dressed as a clown or he's dressed as a Viking and he could have been in any of those costumes for seven years. You should
4: have stuck with the Viking. Um. He could not have been dressed as the Vikings. King of Hearts for
1: seven
3: years. I, you know, I, I watched The Twin Dilemma for the first time in quite a while recently. Uh, which is quite an appalling story, but it has some fascinating fashion choices in the story that are plot relevant and and to see the doctor actually choosing the coat as if it's a good idea um is 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 quite an interesting thing to 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 watch there's also a scene in which Perry hides um like the clip of the gun the the weapon that she's trying to hide from the the bad guys coming to the tiles with her. She hides it in the wardrobe room. Later that guy wakes up from where he's been knocked unconscious, goes into the wardrobe room, chooses the most fabulous sparkly silver jacket, and it just happens to be that's the outfit that Perry has put the thing in the pocket of. And it's done as if it just without any irony at all, and you're just watching it saying, that is not a thing that happened on television. Such, <laughs> which, uh, the fifth Doctor, it's really interesting, the TARDIS actually lays out the clothes for the fifth Doctor. She's actually making, like, she's making an intervention at this point. I think she's just sick of the scarf. So, like, the door swings seductively open and there is the outfit hanging there waiting for him and, you know, he's, he's taken into the room and he, he chooses it. And so sometimes they... they pretend and they play and they go, oh, maybe this one will have the scarf again. No. He's never going to wear the scarf again. It's never going to happen.
2: Now, we could clearly talk about costume forever, but we are out of time. Will you please thank our guests Zen Fletcher and Tansy Rennie Roberts? (laughs) We to remind you that you can find us on Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. Our next show will be about Sylvester McCoy, the Seventh Doctor. And the theme of religion in
1: Doctor Who. Ooh. Uh,
2: Since we are the only podcast with homework, because we're nerds. What is our homework for that show, Petra?
0: Your homework, should you choose to accept it, is the following. To discover the secrets of the Seventh Doctor, we suggest Remembrance of the Daleks, Ghost Light and Survival. If you prefer to listen, we recommend the audio adventures Kolditz, A Thousand Tiny Wings, Magic Mousetrap, Live 34, and Bang Bang A Boom. And for the theme of religion, we have The Demons, The Face of Evil, Planet of Fire, The Curse of Fenric... And The Impossible Planet.
2: Bang, Bang and Boom is actually about uh, the Eurovision Song Contest. It totally it? is. <laughs> yep. It's yep. really good. And Graham Garden's in it. Oh,
0: yeah! <laughs> it's 1985.
2: Doctor Who has been put on hiatus. There's a worry that it's been cancelled. So the obvious thing to do in the situation is to record a We Are The World slash Live Aid style <laughs> record involving celebrities. For the audio listener, we're doing air quotes. Celebrities! <laughs> Uh, it was written and produced by Ian Levine. Now, Ian Levine's quite well-known in fandom. He's, been, in fact, infamous one, might say, in fandom, but also actually quite a well-known. He made, made his fortune in music. Too Many Men, Too Little Time by Miguel Brown and High Energy by Evelyn Thomas, both huge hits in the dance scene across the world. Uh, he produced the first Take That album, Take That and Party. <laughs> uh, this track has Hans Zimmer playing keyboards. Probably doesn't mention it when collecting his Academy Awards, of which he now has three. (laughs) There's a list of of the people who performed on the original. Uh, It's really everyone from a couple of members of Matt Bianco to a couple of members of Tight Fit. Uh, There's also...
1: It's every pop star you've never heard of.
2: (laughs) There's someone from Hot Gossip. There's someone from Buck's Fizz. Uh, there's, There's someone from Ultravox. For some reason, not Maguire, obviously. Um, what I really like too, I read somewhere that Black Lace were meant to perform on it, but their train was cancelled from Bradford. <laughs> and, and possibly the finest sentence you'll ever read: Gary Glitter had dislocated his shoulder. <laughs> uh, a lot of people in the audience just thought, "Good." Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, it could have been worse. It did get released. It didn't shot. If you had it on seven-inch vinyl, it would look like that. What? You didn't tell me you had one of those. I didn't know I had it. I found it at home today. <laughs> 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 I have no memory of having bought this ever. <laughs> the money from it went to cancer relief. And again, money, we should be putting in air quotes. So, <laughs> yeah.
1: Doctor in Distress... Yeah, They called themselves, we should say the group, the group who assembled to sing it Called themselves Who Cares <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of those Titles where you just know it's going to get Used in the reviews And you
2: should go, at the, the video clip It was a video clip for this, it's not only on The DVD box set of Trial of a Time Lord It's also on YouTube, go and look at it It's, it's astounding, it is appalling it I is love appalling. that there's an
0: instrumental version of this <laughs> Just yeah. in case yeah. you want to sing to yourself at home. On yeah. the
1: B side.
2: Yeah. It also has Colin Baker, Anthony Ainley, Nicola Bryant, and Nicholas Courtney. None on of it whom. As well.
1: well, actually, Colin Baker can sing. He's done a lot of musical work. Um, I think it is charitable to call what the others do on this album singing. If you watch them, uh, particularly Anthony Ainley and Nicholas Courtney in the music video, they are just sitting there going why did we agree to do this? <laughs> Although Anthony Ainley's got the biggest grin on his face. Like, you never see the master grin like that until uh, survival again. And it's like, it's just really frightening. Because also, he's given the worst line. It doesn't even rhyme.
2: So, to perform this song, uh, we, we invited the members from two bands, from uh, both Dr Dupre and Dave Wright and the Midnight Electric, which was going really well until they both listened. So, to perform it is the bass player... <laughs> From Doctor Dupre and Dave Wright and the Midnight Electric, uh, will you please welcome to take us out with Doctor in Distress, Tim Cav. and until next time we meet, thank,
1: thank you. you. It's, it's good. good. Keep, Keep warm. <laughs>
5: It's too long to wait. Bring back the doctor, don't hesitate. Was a cold, wet night in November, 50 years ago. Police box in a junkyard. We didn't know which way it would go. An old man took two teachers into time and space. It started off an adventure. That no other could replace Doctor in distress Let's all answer his S.O.S. Doctor in distress Let's bring him back now We won't take less There were evil metal creatures Who tried to exterminate Inside each of their casings Was a bubbling lump of hate We met cybernetic humans With no feelings at all Warriors of the ice Who stood over seven feet tall doctor in distress Let's all answer his SOS Doctor in distress Bring him back now, we won't take less Bring him back now, we won't take less If we stop his travels, he'll be in a mess (laughs) The galaxy will fall to evil once more With nightmarish monsters fighting a war No, no, no to accept 11 doctors with companions at his side when they were faced with danger they didn't run, they didn't hide there was the brigadier and the master the canine computer each screaming girl just hoped that yet it wouldn't shoot her doctor in distress Let's all answer his SOS Doctor in distress Let's bring him back now We won't take less Doctor in distress Let's all answer his SOS Doctor in distress Let's bring him back now We won't take less
0: Been listening to Splendid Chats. We'd like to thank this episode Splendid Chats, Tansy Rainer Roberts, Zen Fletcher, and Tim Cal. Special thanks to Lauren Halstead for cosplay wrangling. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hulk Studios. You can find us at SplendidCokes.com and the Splendid Checks on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott. Until next time, thank you. It's good. Keep on. Just for the record, John never called me
5: again. <laughs>